You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 360 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, at the end of the last show, the Confederate attack on Culp's Hill on July 2nd had ended as the rebels of Allegheny Johnson's division were foiled in their attempt to take the heights there on the right end of the federal line. But both sides understood the issue of the possession of Lower Culp's Hill was far from settled, and that the fight there would certainly be renewed at first light. But we said that the fighting up on that end of the line on July 2nd wasn't over, because while Allegheny Johnson's attack on Culp's Hill had failed, that was only one part of Dick Yule's plan since Yule also had his sights set on the keystone of the entire federal defensive line, Cemetery Hill. Jubal Early had been tasked with attacking Cemetery Hill, and Old Jube waited until Allegheny Johnson was fully engaged, and then he ordered his men forward, stepping off sometime around 8 p.m., Like Allegheny Johnson, Jubal Early also went into the fighting on July 2nd, minus one of his four brigades. To keep an eye eastward and to protect his left, Early had kept extra Billy Smith's brigade in place out on the York Pike, east of town. Then John Gordon's Georgia brigade was moved up closer to the front, but was held back as a supporting force, ready to exploit any opportunity that might be gained by Early's remaining two brigades, which were slated to lead the Twilight Assault on Cemetery Hill, a total of some 2,400 men under Brigadier General Harry Hayes and Colonel Isaac Avery. The orders to advance came as a welcome relief to many of Hayes's and Avery's men. As Major John Beale of the 21st North Carolina later explained, quote, After lying all day under a July sun, suffering from intense heat, and continually annoyed by the enemy's sharpshooters from the heights, from sheer desperation we hailed with delight the order to again meet the veteran foe. When Early ordered the two brigades forward, Hayes, famed and ferocious Louisiana Tigers, moved out on the right, while Avery's North Carolinians were on the left. As soon as the rebels started forward, Cemetery Hill erupted with federal cannon fire. One Yankee said it was, quote, as if a volcano had been let loose. At least 15 Union guns on Cemetery Hill hurled shot and shell at the advancing Confederate lines. So, too, did the six Napoleons of Captain Greenleaf Stevens' 5th Main Battery, posted on McKnight's Knoll, also known as Stevens Knoll, 
which rose up from the saddle of ground between Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill. The Yankee artillery fire was awful, but the advancing rebels pressed on, quickly closing the gaps torn in their lines while continuing to bear down on the hill ahead. Early's plan was to strike both the northeastern and eastern slopes of Cemetery Hill, so while the two regiments on the right of Hayes' line, the 5th and 6th Louisiana, advanced straight ahead from their positions along Weinbrenner's Run on the southeastern outskirts of Gettysburg, Hayes' other three regiments, the 9th, 7th, and 8th Louisiana, pivoted in a southwesterly fashion, wrapping around the curve of the hill. Then, in order to strike the hill's eastern slopes, Avery's brigade was forced to execute a broad, sweeping right-wheel maneuver so that the men would be advancing south to west, all the while exposed to a hurricane of enemy artillery fire. The North Carolinians had a lot of ground to cover, and it was, said the 57th North Carolina's Colonel A.C. Godwin, a combat maneuver that, quote, none but the steadiest veterans could have executed under the circumstances. But executed the Tar Heels did, in textbook fashion. However, the change in direction of their advance now exposed their left flank to the gunners of the 5th Main Battery on Stevens Knoll, who now loaded their pieces with deadly canister. The results were lethal, with Godwin's 57th North Carolina on the left of Avery's line cut to shreds by the Yankee artillery fire. As the determined Confederates continued to advance through the storm of artillery fire that pounded their ranks with shot and shell and blast of canister, the Federal 11th Corps soldiers positioned either on or near the base of Cemetery Hill raced to receive the enemy attack, with many of them surprised that the rebels were launching a major assault at so late an hour. Those Federal soldiers belonged to a shattered and shaken formation. As you guys will recall, the previous day, the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, the 11th Corps had suffered frightful casualties north of town, and now what was left of its three divisions were spread out across Cemetery Hill. Howard had kept back Orland Smith's brigade as a rallying force on Cemetery Hill, so it had been unbloodied on July 1st but it had spent much of the second day of the battle on the skirmish line, trading shots with Rhodes' Confederates in and on the outskirts of town. Smith's Federals, along with the broken fragments of Coster's brigade, occupied West Cemetery Hill. To their right and rear, and occupying the crest of the hilltop, were the remnants of Schertz's division, a total of perhaps 1,500 men, in the two brigades of Krzynowski and Schimmelfenig. Although, remember, at this point, Schimmelfenig was presumed either dead or captured, when, in reality, he was hiding behind the Garlax woodshed on Baltimore Street. So on July 2nd, the brigade was commanded by Colonel George von Amsberg. Schertz's line extended northeasterly toward the Baltimore Pike, on the other side of that critical roadway, occupying East Cemetery Hill, were the soldiers of the 11th Corps' final division, led by 28-year-old Brigadier General Adelbert Ames, 
1861 graduate of West Point who had the previous day assumed command of Francis Barlow's division, or at least what was left of it, after Barlow was wounded and captured in the fighting north of town. Just over 1,100 men were still left in the ranks of Ames' two brigades on July 2nd. The 25th Ohio had been so roughly handled the previous day that the entire regiment numbered just 60 men on July 2nd. The losses in Colonel Leopold von Gilsa's brigade were so heavy that when the survivors of his four regiments rallied on Cemetery Hill late on the afternoon of the 1st, one of his officers told him, You can now command your brigade easily with the voice, my dear colonel. This is all that is left. Ames positioned his severely understrength brigades at right angles to one another in the shape of an upside-down backward L. Colonel Andrew Harris's men, Ames' old brigade, found some shelter behind a stone fence that ran east from the Baltimore Pike and stretched across the northern face of the hilltop. The hill sloped down to the east to a narrow roadway known as the Brickyard Lane, which ran south along the eastern base of the hill. Von Gilsa's men, making up the long end of the L, formed behind the stone fences that lined the roadway. Joining the defenders at this spot was the 33rd Massachusetts, sent over from Orland Smith's brigade. The Bay Staters went into position on the right end of Von Gilsa's line, stretching the line southward toward Stevens Knoll and Culp's Hill beyond. Ames' Federals were stretched thin, especially along Harris's front, where, he later wrote, his men had all the elbow room they wanted. Meanwhile, Hayes and Avery's Confederates advanced ever nearer, driving back the Union skirmishers. One soldier in the 25th Ohio said the rebels came on, quote, yelling like demons with fixed bayonets. The Confederates had suffered considerably from the Federal artillery fire during their advance toward Cemetery Hill, Avery's North Carolinians especially. Then the fire from hundreds of Yankee muskets lit up the deepening darkness, dropping rebel soldiers by the dozen. Major Beale of the 21st North Carolina did his best to describe the ghastly tableau. Quote, the hour was one of horror. Amid the incessant roar of cannon, the din of musketry, and the glare of bursting shells making the darkness intermittent, adding awfulness to the scene, the hoarse shouts of friend and foe, piteous cries of the wounded and dying, one could well imagine that war is hell. Despite their losses, the Confederates continued pressing forward and finally crashed into Ames' shaky defensive line. Hayes's Louisiana Tigers struck first, slamming into Harris's front and striking at the bend in the L of the Federal line. Desperate and vicious hand-to-hand combat broke out. Harris said that, quote, At that point, and soon along the whole line, the fighting was obstinate and bloody. The bayonet, musket, and anything, in fact, that could be made available was used. Harris's line was too thin, and there were too few Federal troops here, to stem the Confederate tide. The Yankees started to fall back, streaming up the hillside, 
closely followed by Hayes howling Louisianans, who, said one Federal, quote, put their big feet on the stone wall and went over like deer. To the right and rear of Harris's position, Von Gilsa's line was also crumbling, with its left hit by Hayes' Louisianans and right by Avery's North Carolinians. Here, also, savage hand-to-hand fighting broke out, with desperate soldiers of both sides using not just muskets and bayonets, but also, according to one man in the 153rd Pennsylvania, quote, knives, stones, fists, anything calculated to inflict death was resorted to. In the darkness, as chaos and confusion reigned, several 11th Corps regiments clung tenaciously to their spots at the stone fences, while others retreated up the hillside. In the darkness, groups of Louisianans and North Carolinians pushed through the holes in the Federal line and began climbing up both the northern and eastern slopes toward the summit of Cemetery Hill. But the Confederates' strength faded with each step forward as units lost cohesion and losses mounted. Colonel Godwin of the 57th North Carolina spoke to this situation when he later wrote that the men, quote, charged up the hill with heroic determination and drove the enemy. In this charge, the command had become much separated, and in the darkness, it was now found impossible to concentrate more than 40 or 50 men at any point for further advance. Those Tar Heels who did hammer through the federal defenses and who now advanced to the hilltop did so without their commander. At some point in the advance, Colonel Isaac Avery was struck down, falling from the saddle, shot through the neck with what proved to be a fatal wound. In the darkness, no one saw him fall. When his body was discovered later, it was found with a note that Avery had managed to write, stained red with his blood. It read, Tell my father I died with my face to the enemy. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In the moonlight and in shadows lit by the rapid and frequent discharge of muskets and cannon, wild and confusing scenes played out atop Cemetery Hill as desperate men, caught up in a furious life-and-death struggle, grappled with the enemy. One Yankee said, quote, For a time, the opposing forces were much mixed up together, and with the uncertainty of the light, in the dusk of evening, 
it was difficult to distinguish friend from foe. Groups of panting Louisianans and North Carolinians rushed forward toward the line of federal cannon that crowned the hilltop. The powder-stained, sweating gunners of Captain Michael Weedrick's Battery I, 1st New York Light Artillery, and Captain R. Bruce Ricketts' Batteries F and G, 1st Pennsylvania Light Artillery, were able to fire off a few last rounds of canister before being overrun. More hand-to-hand fighting broke out as the Federals stood by their pieces, battling it out, Ricketts said, quote, with pistols, handspikes, and rammers. Determined groups of Confederates from both Hayes and Avery's brigades had made it to the very top of Cemetery Hill, where, in the darkness, they battled to hang on to their tenuous foothold there. Even as they engaged in ferocious close-quarters combat with the Federal infantry and artillerymen on the hilltop, the rebels looked back down the slopes they had just come up, hoping to see reinforcements heading their way. Jubal Early also looked for support, expecting every minute to hear fellow division commander Robert Rhodes' attack unfolding on the opposite side of Cemetery Hill, but an attack on the hilltop by Rhodes' division never happened. Dick Yule had ordered Rhodes to, quote, cooperate with the attacking force as soon as an opportunity of doing so with good effect was offered, end quote. However, Rhodes waited until after Early's attack kicked off before starting to extract his own troops from Gettysburg, apparently misgaging or underestimating the time it would take to sidestep them south before wheeling left to face Cemetery Hill. That meant that by the time Rhodes' men were in position, Early's attack on the hilltop had already run out of steam. Rhodes had also expected that Dorsey Pender's division from A.P. Hill's Corps would form up to his right and support his attack on Cemetery Hill, but Pender had been struck down by a shell fragment that afternoon and mortally wounded, as it turned out, and it seems no one had made any preparations for his division to take part in an assault on Cemetery Hill that evening. So, there wouldn't be any troops on Rhodes' right to support his attack. Because he was late getting into position, and because Pender's division wasn't going to support his attack, Rhodes called off his part of the assault on Cemetery Hill. Rhodes and his subordinates thought the Federal position on the hilltop to their front was much too strong, and with the lateness of the hour, any advance would have resulted, in Rhodes' words, quote, in a useless sacrifice of life. For his part, Jubal Early would also use the same justification for not sending John Gordon's brigade into the fight. Early would write that with Rhodes' division not attacking on his right, sending Gordon's Georgians into the fight would have been, quote, a useless sacrifice of life. And so, with their numbers rapidly dwindling, Hayes' Louisianans and Avery's North Carolinians were left alone up on Cemetery Hill, fighting for their lives in the darkness as a wave of new troops in blue rushed into the hellish cauldron of combat on East Cemetery Hill. (music) 
With the possession of the vital hilltop seemingly teetering in the balance, Carl Schurz, following 11th Corps Commander Otis Howard's orders, led portions of Krizanowski's and Koster's brigades into the fight for East Cemetery Hill. Charging across the Baltimore Pike in the darkness, Schurz later described what these reinforcements encountered. Quote, Arriving at the batteries, we found an indescribable scene of melee. Some rebel infantry had scaled the breastworks and were taking possession of the guns. But the cannoneers defended themselves desperately, with rammers and fence rails, hand spikes and stones, they knocked down the intruders. Our infantry made a vigorous rush upon the invaders, and after a short but spirited hand-to-hand scuffle, tumbled them down the embankment. Behind Schurz's troops, and to the rear of the tangled mass of men fighting for possession of the Union artillery pieces, came even more Federal reinforcements. These were Second Corps soldiers from Samuel Carroll's brigade. The rather desperate fighting on his part of the line, down along Cemetery Ridge, had already played itself out by the time Second Corps commander Winfield Scott Hancock heard the sound of battle erupt from the direction of Cemetery Hill to his right rear. Hancock turned to Division Commander John Gibbon and said, We ought to send some help over there. Send a brigade. Send Carroll. In response to the quickly issued orders, Samuel Carroll moved quickly toward East Cemetery Hill with three of his four regiments, men from Ohio, Indiana, and West Virginia. According to a soldier in the 4th Ohio, quote, We started at the double quick, which soon became a dead run. Many of our men throwing away their knapsacks and blankets in order to keep up with the mad dash. Rushing forward in the darkness, passing among the graves of Evergreen Cemetery, then through and around the arched gatehouse, Carroll's Yankees charged straight toward the small band of North Carolinians from Avery's Brigade who were clustered around Ricketts' battery, slamming into the rebels and driving them down the hillside. Carroll's men pursued the retreating Confederates closely, scooping up dozens of prisoners along Brickyard Lane and in the open fields beyond. At the end of his strength and overwhelmed by Krizanowski's and Coster's Federals, Harry Hayes had already ordered his Louisianans to retreat. For a few brief moments, Hayes and Avery's Confederates had gained the crest of, the, of Cemetery Hill, but unsupported, they were forced to retreat from the hilltop by the timely arrival of hard-hitting enemy reinforcements. Hayes' adjutant would later write that, quote, The charge was a daring and desperate one, and although unsuccessful, on account of the failure of our supports to come up, we gained great credit for it. This want of concert of action on the part of our generals was the chief cause of the loss of the great battle of Gettysburg. End quote. This want of concert of action on the part of our generals was the chief cause of the loss of the great battle of Gettysburg. That last sentence, written about the fight for East Cemetery Hill, could nevertheless be the verdict on the overall Confederate effort on July 2nd at Gettysburg. We'll talk more about the Confederate failure, or failures, in the next episode, 
as we look at how the second day of the battle was a long and trying one for Robert E. Lee. And we'll also talk about George Meade's role in the day's proceedings, culminating with his famed Council of War that night at his headquarters at the Widow Leicester's house. For now, we'll close this show by pointing out that night combat, on any significant scale, was fairly rare during the Civil War, for the simple reason that any advantage an attacker might gain by such an assault was usually more than offset by the command and control challenges that went hand-in-hand with such an operation. In other words, during the Civil War, it was not only devilishly difficult to tell exactly what was going on in the darkness, but it was virtually impossible to maintain control of your attacking troops at night once the fighting started. But at the Battle of Gettysburg, just to prove there was a bit of everything during the three days of combat, we find that on the evening of July 2nd, there was this really desperate fighting in the darkness for possession of Cemetery Hill. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And this will actually be a two-for-one, since John M. Archer has two small books covering the fighting we've talked about in the last show and this one. Exactly. Those two books are Culp's Hill at Gettysburg, The Mountain Trembled, and East Cemetery Hill at Gettysburg, The Hour Was One of Horror, both by John M. Archer. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Thanks to everyone for the recent donations and to those who have signed up for the Strawfoot Brigade. Sorry we haven't been putting out new members material as often as we would like, but both of our day jobs have been kicking our butts lately and we haven't had much gas left in the tank lately for the podcast. Uh, Hopefully things are settling down on that front, though, and we can get back in the swing of things here with the show. Hopefully. Right. Thanks, y'all, for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.